Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Law of Attraction Secrets podcast. Today, we have somebody who has already been on the show. He was one of my very first guests, in fact, back in 2021. And today, he is here with us again, In coming all the way from India today. He is one of the most wonderful humans I've ever met. He is one of the brightest humans I've ever met. He's somebody you will learn so much from. I will introduce him now. Dr. John Martini is such an avid seeker of knowledge. I think that's a great way to put it. He has a text he told me once, which is, if you can see right now, is literally this thick of writings and things that he's learned, teachings along his way. And Dr. John Martini's mission and vision is to share knowledge and wisdom that empowers you to become a master of your own life and destiny. How cool does that sound? You will actually learn from today's show how to empower yourself, how to master your own life, take control of your actions, your values. You'll learn so much. I love talking with John. I'm so excited. Today's going to be extra special. So make sure you have a pen and some paper to hand if that's safe for you to do so. And dive in, press play. Let's enjoy today. Good is He's an internationally published author, a global educator, and the founder of the Demartini Method. So like, what is that? Well, it's a revolutionary tool in modern psychology. And we're about to dive deeper into that. His education curriculum ranges from personal growth seminars to corporate empowerment programs. You may know him from The Secret. And we've had so many guests from The Secret on the show, including one of my mentors, Rhonda Byrne. So many more of them have been on, as you guys are aware. So if you like The Secret, you're in for a treat here. His teachings are the synthesis of knowledge and wisdom from the greatest minds throughout history. And his curriculum is designed to help you empower and inspire all seven areas of your life. Welcome to the show, Dr. John D. Martini. What an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always like... Uh, you, sometimes it's just that guy that, we, that we've heard before. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, I love to always let everybody know exactly what they're going to learn on the show, who's coming on, and why I've chosen this person to be a part of the Law of Attraction Secrets. And you surely know many secrets behind the Law of Attraction. This is your area, your forte, your wisdom, your area of expertise. My mission has been since I was 17, so I've been teaching over 50 years now. My mission was to master my own life through exemplification of what's possible and do what I can to assist other people doing the same. And that's, I don't have anything else I'd rather be doing. So that's what I do pretty well seven days a week. And I love it. And why not do what you love in life? So helping people do something extraordinary with their life is more than fulfilling, very inspiring. No, I love that. Absolutely. Living from a place of happiness and joy and Will you dive into your values? I love talking about this with you. You you know, you discuss highest values. What are your what are your values? How do you live your life? Will you expand on this for us? Well, every individual, regardless of their gender spectrum, their age, their culture, lives moment by moment through a set of values. 
a set of priorities, things that are most to least important in their life. It does impact the way you perceive life, the way you decide in life, and the way you act. And that really impacts your behavior. So I like to say that the hierarchy of your values dictates your destiny. It dictates what you're going, what you're headed for. On that hierarchy of values, whatever is highest on the values is more intrinsic. You identify with it more. In fact, your very highest value, your ontological identity revolves around. So my highest value is teaching, and I call myself a teacher. But somebody else's highest value may be raising a beautiful family, and they may call themselves a mother. Go down the list of values, the values become more extrinsic, which means you need more motivation extrinsically in order to get you to act upon them and fulfill them. But the ones at the top, you spontaneously desire to act and fulfill it. You spontaneously act. So anytime we're filling our day with the highest priority actions, we have a higher probability of spontaneously fulfilling them and achieving them and walking our talk about living our life. But the second we attempt to live by lower values, we devalue ourselves. When we live by highest values, we devalue ourselves. And if not, we devalue ourselves and become ungrateful and self-depreciated because we're not really living authentically according to our real identity. And the unfulfillment that occurs brings the blood glucose and oxygen out of the executive center in our highest values down into the amygdala where we want to avoid pain and seek pleasure and we want to survive instead of thrive. And then we end up being distracted by impulses of seeking and distracted by instincts of avoiding. And we're basically like an automaton reacting to external world, extrinsically driven instead of intrinsically called into an inspired action where we build incremental momentum towards greater and ever greater achievement. So identifying what's really, really important to you, not what you fantasize about, but what's really your life demonstrates is truly important to you, is a very important step in the mastery path because so many people compare themselves to others and minimize themselves to people they put on pedestals or exaggerate themselves to people they put in pits. And they try to be somebody they're not and live in other people's values, which is futile. We're trying to get other people to live in their values, which is futile. And they distract themselves with futile, unproductive actions through comparison and judgments, which leaves them emptiness. Instead of just going and living by their highest values where they're most objective and neutral, their most sustainable and fair exchange, and they're more reflective in awareness, and there's no putting people above or below, they're just putting in your heart, where you're now on a journey as an individual, inspiring other people to be on their journey. And that's the path of a, of a great fulfillment life, and mastery in life, and self-actualization, if you want to call it that. So values underlie our path. And knowing what they are, knowing what's really most important, and prioritizing. Instead of comparing ourselves to other people and judging, it's much wiser to compare our daily actions to what we value most and live by priority, delegating all lower priority things. Anything that you need motivation to do, it's wise to delegate to people who love doing it. So you're liberated to do what you love, where you excel, and you spontaneously act doing something that's inspiring you. So you don't feel like there's resistance in the world. You feel like everything is on the way, not in the way. And that's totally livable. It's just by prioritization. So values underlie the path of mastery unquestionably.
That is so powerful. And you once told me that you haven't cooked in, I mean, since I don't know when. And that's a perfect example because I think it's how many years, 25 years or something you haven't cooked for? Uh, 45 years, since oh, I was 24. 25. Oh my God. 24, 44 and a half years, it's actually. That's crazy. I have, I, 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 where I live here on the ship, I, I have cooked. And uh, I haven't driven a car in 33 years, so I don't drive, I don't cook. I don't do pretty well anything except teach, research, and write, which are my top three values. I learn to delegate everything other than what I do greatest. And that way I can just focus on what I love doing and become more proficient in it and let other people do what they love, who love doing the other things. And exactly. that way I give job opportunities and engage people and and uh, more inspired by, by life that way. 100%. This is the way, the key to life, I, I believe. Doing things that make you happy. I always say to my team, if I'm having to do your roles, I cannot show up in the things that I need to do because I'm faffing around doing things that don't serve me and I have no idea how to do anyway. And if I do have an idea how to do it, then I won't need you anymore. So I always want to live in my highest value so that I can create opportunities for others to be able to thrive in their areas. I think thrival, not survival, is one of the key messages that we want to live by here. You don't just want to survive every day. You don't just want to exist every day. So many people go about their day and don't realize they're living in the mundane. They're just doing. They're not actually being a human. They're not taking initiative in the area that fulfills them and makes them happy and moves the needle boards in their life. And they find themselves doing all the admin tasks or everything else. And all of a sudden, at the end of the day, you might have tidied your kitchen and done, you know, the meal prep and whatever else you need to do. But how, what have you actually done that fulfills you? You feel fulfilled for a moment and it's like instant gratification versus long-term fulfillment. Long-term fulfillment is what we seek. We want something that is going to leave a mark here on planet Earth so that when we are past and gone, what is our legacy? How will people remember us? And even if it is just a inverted commas mother or just a father, you're never just a, if you thrived in your area, people will remember you as a mother to many you know, as a father to many. Yeah, well, you said it, you summarized it and said it perfectly. So um, it's a great dovetail uh, summary there. Thank you. Well, I would love to dive into your method. We would love to hear around the Dr. Demartini famous method. So if anybody hasn't yet discovered the Demartini method, you are about to discover a little bit about it. When you interact with someone, you sometimes have subjective interpretations of who they are that are subjective biases. And maybe you're conscious of their upsides and unconscious their downsides and impulsively attracted with an infatuation. Or maybe you're conscious of the downsides and unconscious of the upsides and instinctually uh, avoiding them out of a reaction. And either of these are mindless states. They're not mindful states because you're ignoring some of the information and that's ignorance or blindness or unconsciousness. And every time we do that, if we put people on pedestals, we tend to minimize ourselves. And we put people in pits, we tend to exaggerate ourselves. And we all want to be loved for who we are, but we're not being who we are when we exaggerate or minimize ourselves. We're inauthentic. We're putting on a facade, a mask, a persona, 
instead of being our true nature. And how are we going to be loved for who we are if we're not being who we are? So first is that every time we judge somebody and we're too humble to admit what we see in them is inside us, we're too proud to admit what we see in them is inside us. This disowned part, this dismembered part, this deflected part is a void of leaving that leaves us emptiness when we judge. We feel empty. And we strive to try to return our perceptions to reflective awareness, where the seer, the seeing, and the seeing are the same, and what you see in them, you have in you. So you can have an intimate love and appreciation for them, because they're a reflection of you. Namaste, as they say in India, the divine in all of us. But the Demartini method is a series of very concise questions to take those distorted perceptions, those incomplete awarenesses, and the apparent chaos that they generate and emptiness that they generate and return them to a balanced state where you have equanimity within yourself so you're authentic and equity between yourself and others where you have now sustainable fair exchange relationships with them which are flourishing. So it's a very serious series of questions because the quality of our life is basically quite the questions we ask and the ultimate questions are the ones that bring unconscious back to consciousness so we can be fully conscious. So let's say we meet somebody that we resent and we look down on and we think we're superior to and we're deflective. You ask a question. This is one of the questions. What specific trait, action or inaction, do I perceive in this individual that I dislike or despise most? What specific trait, action, or inaction do I perceive this individual displaying or demonstrating that I despise or dislike or want to avoid most? And get really precise on what it is that you're judging, because it could be many different things. And sometimes we don't get specific. We have this generic avoidance and want to label somebody with a false attribution bias. But to get really specific on what it is. And once you own that, from which you discover that, the next question is a self-reflective question. All right, John. Go to a moment where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating that same specific trait, action, or inaction that you judged in them. At first, you're going to say, no, 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 I'm too proud to admit that. I would never do that. I don't do that. But I've been doing this for quite a number of years, and uh, there's about four decades almost. And um, I've not seen an individual who is, unless they're just unwilling to face themselves, that can't find what they see in others inside them. It has been proverbial for thousands of years, this understanding. I mean, it was in Romans 2.1, I think, in the New Testament that talked about it, that those that you judge are reflections of that which you judge in yourself, nothing more. So you go in there and you own the trait, and you now become reflective. And if you were too proud to admit it, you now come down and you level the playing field. We are not putting them down. You're not putting yourself up. You're putting yourself in equilibrium. And so now you're not exaggerating yourself relative to them. You're now realizing you humbled yourself. You did it consciously because nature, whenever you get proud, nature attracts events to humble you anyway. So if you don't govern yourself, the world around you has to be governing it. And followers of life the masses of life are governed from without. The masters in life are governed from within. They have reflective awareness. So you go in there and you own the trait quantitatively and qualitatively until it's perfectly reflected and you realize that who am I judging 
but myself. Then you go to the next question. Go to a moment where and when you perceive this individual displaying or demonstrating the specific trait, action, or inaction that you despised or disliked most. And go into that moment. Because it's in the moment of perception that the conscious and unconscious mind split. Because perception is not the reception of the senses. It's what happens when it goes into the spine and in the, into the brain, and we stack all the previous associations from our subconscious mind with it. So it's not even what we're actually perceiving it, seeing it. It's what we perceive out of it. And we have control of our perceptions, decisions, and actions. So you go into the moment where and when you perceive them displaying or demonstrating the specific trade, action, or inaction that you disliked. And in that moment, you ask, what were the advantages to me? What were the benefits? How did it serve me? What's the upsides? And you hold yourself accountable to not make anything up, but to discover that which you overlooked with your, your bias. You know, you, you have a, a false negative on that which you overlooked and a false positive on what you labeled them for. And so you go in there and you go and find out where is the upside. When the upsides are stacked up and they're equal to the downsides, the judgment, who's? And then you realize that the, whatever they did was actually a catalyst to help you become aware of what you've done in your life that you feel ashamed of. And they're reminding it to help you learn how to love that part of you because you only want to fix things in other people that represent a part of you you haven't loved. Ooh. So it was a real, it's, it's a real reflective insight holding you accountable to look again. Because we have events in our life that we think are terrible. And then a day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, we go, oh, thank God that occurred. But why have the wisdom of the ages with the aging process? We can have the wisdom of the ages by just asking the questions, extract the meaning out of things. The mean is the balance, the middle point between the two excess deficiencies, as Aristotle called it. But by going and finding the upside, and we neutralize it in our downsides, finding the upsides and bringing them into balance, there's no judgment. There's no, I'm too proud to admit it. So the emptiness of that void and non-reflected state is now reflected. And now you have an intimate appreciation for them and yourself, for that matter, for now realizing that that's not a terrible, it's just an event. All events are neutral till somebody with a subjective bias interprets things and makes heaven out of a hell or a hell out of heaven, as John Milton said. The fourth question is, now go to the moment where and when you perceived yourself displaying or demonstrating that behavior where you were judging them and now you're judging yourself before. And to whoever you did that to, where was it, when was it, who was it to, and who perceived it, you're doing it. How did it benefit them? Because you're carrying around shame only because you assume that what you did was more drawbacks or benefits to somebody else. And in fact, that doesn't actually occur. You can never get a one-sided outcome. So you go in there and you identify where the benefits to others are to shed the the self-depreciating illusion of a moral hypocrisy that you've been indoctrinated, usually by politicians and religious leaders. And you shed that and you get to love yourself and have equanimity as you get to love them and have equity. Then you go to another level. Go to a moment where and when you perceive this individual displaying that trait you despised. And now identify who they were doing it to, you. And now go to a moment where you perceive them displaying the exact opposite behavior to you. And you will discover, I promise you, if you look carefully, that when you challenge their values their one way, you support their values, they play the opposite way. 
they're not the label you projected onto them. They're a human being with both sides. So if you go in and look carefully and hold yourself accountable and look for where they have the complete opposite side, they're not mean, they're also nice. They're not cruel, they're also kind. They're not stingy, they're also generous. They're not thoughtless, they're also thoughtful. If you look and see and honor both sides and bring those into balance, the label goes away. The absolutism they're always mean to make goes away. The victim consciousness goes away. And you're already now starting to realize that this individual is a teacher, thank you. You appreciate this individual's contribution to your life instead of resenting. Then this next question is a really cool one. You go to a moment where and when you perceive them displaying or demonstrating the trait, just like in column three. And then you now ask, at that moment, where are you? You get really present. When are you? Get really present. What's the content? What exactly are they doing in that moment? And what's the context? What's initiating it? What role are you playing in making that initiation, that, that behavior? And who are they doing it to? You. At that exact moment, when you become present in that, you will discover by homeostasis in the brain and by dissociation equilibrium, your mind will create the complete opposite, either in reality or virtual reality, in order to maintain homeostasis in neurochemistry. And so you'll create an opposite system. For instance, I had a gentleman that was locked into a trunk, beaten over the head, put a, a thing over his head and put into a trunk and was ransomed millions of dollars. But while he was in the trunk and in darkness and had fumes from gasoline, he imagined himself running with his family out in a field with fresh air because the mind will automatically create a composite anti-memory to balance out every memory to maintain homeostasis chemically and electronically in the brain. So you go in there and you ask, where is that? And at that moment, you find out the opposite. And the moment you do, the, the perception is now fully conscious and there's not even a perception that they did anything that you're resenting. You actually realize that there was just a pair of opposites and that's the definition of love. There was a moment of love in that moment. You never saw it because you were too biased to interpret it and see it. But now with the accountable questions, you now get to see that there's nothing there except thank you, a grace state. Then you go to one step further, you've asked the question, go to the moment where and when they displayed the trait you despise. And in that moment, if they had done the opposite and done what you hoped they would have done, the fantasy you're holding on to that led to you resenting them, because you can't have a, you can't resist some behavior without having a fantasy of the opposite. If they had done the opposite, what would have been the drawback to crack the fantasy you're comparing them to? Many people, I know many husbands and wives resenting each other at times because they're comparing their behaviors to a fantasy of how they think they should be. And as long as they're addicted to the fantasy, they can't appreciate their spouse. So I go and I crack the fantasy. But that's the first seven questions of 80 questions a human being can do to transform their perceptions and discover the magnificent hidden order that's in the chaos that they have labeled in their life. And that's like just so rewarding finding these answers. It's so incredible listening to the way that we can dissect our own life. I love that. So you can find a moment. What about you? Did you go through something that really hit you in your life that it helped you to become who you are today? Was there a, a pinnacle point? Was there a moment in your childhood or maybe later that just it happened to you? And like many of us have been through traumas and triumphs and tribulations, what did you go through that led you to become? Well, they're, they're ultimately none of those things. Those are the labels we put on them. 
terrible events, you know, traumas or whatever. I had a lady this weekend that tried to pretend she had a trauma. And I said, are you sure it's a trauma? And they said, well, of course it's a trauma. It's this and this and this. I said, you mind if I ask you some questions? And I took her through the questions and I said, is it still a trauma? She said, no, it was exactly what I needed to fulfill my mission. I said, exactly. Traumas are incomplete awarenesses. So yes, I had some interesting challenges. I was born uh, in 1954. I had an arm deformity and a leg deformity and had my arm and leg turned in. And I had to wear braces from one and a half to four, over four. So I had a desire to be free and not constrained. Ooh, that's interesting. I've traveled the world and I live where I, I'm pretty free. I, so everything that you think is you know, a challenge or terrible is actually exactly what's needed in the journey. But we don't always see it initially and we want to falsely label it. And then we end up playing victim of history instead of mastery of destiny. Anything we can't say thank you for is our baggage. Then I also, at that time, one and a half, was told how I had to go to a speech pathologist because I wasn't using my mouth properly. So I had a speech impediment. And even all the way till age five, six, seven, when I got to first grade, my teacher said to my parents, I'm afraid your son is never going to be able to read. He's never going to be able to write. He's not going to be able to communicate effectively. He's probably not going to go very far. He won't amount to anything because he can't read. I didn't read till I was 18 and he can't speak properly. So what am I today? <laughs> a professional speaker. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Thank you, teacher. Thank you. You, you set the perfect step for me to have something to work on. My voids become my values. So the, the freedom to travel, and I, I'm a pretty, you know, I've always said that the universe is my playground, the world is my home. I live on a ship called the world, and um, every country's a rim of the house as far as I'm concerned. Instead of walking rim to rim, I fly or sail, and it's just one big house, Earth. And I, I, I that way I feel like I'm not constrained in any way because I'm everywhere. And every country is just another rib of the house. Every culture is just another reflection of a part of me that I may or may not have mastered learning and loving. So I had challenges, but each of those challenges become the very gifts that we have in life if we look carefully. And it shapes you into who you are today. I love what you just said. Anything you can't say thank you for is our baggage. That is so powerful. And anything we can say thank you for is our fuel. So we can turn baggage into fuel, things in the way to on the way. And that's so profound because we hold on to things and we, he said, she said, that's the problem. They're the problem. You're the problem. And it's like, no, having three fingers are pointing back at who? At me. I'm the problem. Nobody externally is the problem. It was the Greek philosopher Epictetus that said some things that was meaningful. He said, in your journey of self-development, the first thing, when you're first starting out and you're a neophyte, you blame others with false attribution bias, and you get caught in the world of causality. They caused me this feeling, external sourced. The truth is nobody, no matter what they do, can cause you a feeling. It's your interpretation, perception of what they did that causes the feeling, not their action. That's what people don't understand. They, they blame. And he says, so first they blame others. And then when they go further down their journey, they blame themselves. And then when they finally reach the pinnacle, they realize, there's nothing to blame. It was an illusion to blame. And the same thing goes for credit. We sometimes have false attribution bias and give power to somebody outside us. And we're too proud to admit we have that, or too humble to admit we have that. 
So then we end up giving power to somebody else, a false attribution bias that way. And now we are credit oriented. So Epictetus said, first you give credit and you take credit, and then you realize there's nothing to give or take credit for. This just chop wood, carry water. It's just a magnificence of the order that nothing needs to be fixed or changed in that moment. There's a grace. So we go through those learning processes, but we start out at the very bottom of the amygdala. We have a blame and credit cycle, and that's the karmic cycle of the Buddhist causalities. But eventually we reach to the dharmic path, and we reach a realization that there's nothing to give credit or blame. Take no credit, take no blame, just keep focused on chi fame. The name of the game is thank you, I love you. That motto, that's so beautiful, and it's true. Thank you, I love you is everything. Thank you, please forgive me, the Ho'oponopono ancient Hawaiian method by Dr. Hugh Len. I'm sure you're aware of it. That is exactly it. I'm sorry. But there's, there's no difference, though. When you actually transcend, there's nothing to forgive. Forgiveness is still assuming there was something in error. There's a, there's a hidden order in the world that we don't see. Leibniz tried to teach it, and Voltaire made a, a, a you know, satire out of it with Candide, but he said there was a divine perfection, but few people get to see it. But those that do, their lives are changed forever, and no one could ever improve upon the magnificence of what's already present. So our job is to not you know, blame something and then forgive it and then dissociate and think, well, I don't do that, and they did this to me and get all caught in that drama, it's to actually realize that what they've done is actually part of the perfection of the journey, and there's nothing there to forgive. As, as Jim Polsky said, love is not having to say you're sorry or forgive anything. There's nothing there to forgive. It's already forgiven. It's already... It's already ordered. It's nothing there. There's nothing there. The judgment was your illusion. I had a lady, if I don't mind, I'd like to share this funny story. This lady comes to me in Florida. And uh, she's, you know, ranting about she's a victim of this, a victim of that, kind of rounding a story in. And I, uh, I said, so stop. You, st you run your story, you know, grow. Just stop the story for a second. What are you upset about? She said, well, my mother wasn't there for me. She abandoned me. And I said, okay, that's how you perceive it. That's your perception. But let's take a look at it deeper. What specifically did you think you missed out on? because your mother wasn't there the way you wish she would have been there. In your idea, your your expectation assumes now how the world's supposed to be, and that was projected onto your mom. She has a different set of values and needs, so she didn't do what you wanted, and you're upset, and you're blaming her, but what do you think she didn't do enough of? Well, she wasn't there to guide me, wasn't there enough around me. She didn't show affection to me. Great. So let's take each one of those and find out who did. So who was there giving you the affection and guidance. She says, nobody. I said, I didn't ask the question if there was somebody there. I said, who is there? My certainty exceeds your doubt. Look again, because you never looked. So you've been blaming and running a story. Who is there for you? And she said, well, when my mom left, yeah, my aunt took me. And who else? My grandmother. So who else became somebody that guided you right at that time? Well, at that age, I was in elementary school, and I really got close to a teacher, so she became a bit of a mother. And who else? Well, my best friend, I stayed at her place a lot, and I, and that mother became a mother. So you had kind of like four mothers. And she goes, well, now that you bring that out to me, yeah, I had like four mothers. I said, what was the benefit of them in your life? And she said, well, I learned some things from the teachers, and I, my 
my aunt was there for me at Yale. I said, so if your mother had been there the way you fantasized, and not these beautiful women there to guide you and be there for you in affection, what would have been the drawback? She said, it wouldn't be a drawback. I said, no, that's a fantasy. Everything has two sides. There's never a positive without a negative, or a negative without a positive, always a pair of opposites. So what would be the drawback? I can't see any. I said, take a look again. And she paused and got present. And then she said, oh my God. I said, what is it? She goes, I just heard something my, my aunt told me way back when I was a little girl. Just popped in my head. I said, what is it? I can't believe I forgot this. Didn't I just blocked it out? My aunt said to me when I was a little girl and my mom left, the reason your mom left is not because she didn't love you, honey. Your mom had bipolar condition. And she put you in the bath and forgot it, and you almost drowned. And your mom came to me and said, I'm unfit as a mother. I love my daughter. I almost killed her. Will you help me? And so the aunt and the grandmother took her on. And she didn't want to see her daughter, not because she didn't love her daughter, but because she didn't want to see her and think that she's got a burden on her life because of it. And she blocked that out when she was a girl. But all of a sudden it came up and I asked her, what would have been the drawback if your mom had been there? And she said, I probably wouldn't be alive. I said, so what's the benefit? You sure your mother didn't love you after all? You had this story that you ran because you misinterpreted it and you had expectations as a little girl and fantasies and it didn't match the fantasy and you were angry. Anyway, in that moment, she started to cry. I started to feel a great, great deal of love for her mom and realized that must have taken enormous amounts of love to be able to pull that off, to give away your child to somebody that you think can do a better job for the sake of the child. And her whole life and story changed. The drama changed. The noise in the brain, ranting, just stopped. And she all of a sudden said, I wasn't abandoned. I wasn't devalued. I was valued. And I've been reacting and living as if I was a devalued child because of my own creation, not because of my mom. And I basically felt unworthy of great men and unworthy of a great this and great life because of that. It was created in my own mind. I said, now you're, now you're aware. She says, I'm right now, I feel I'd like to say hi to my mom and I love you. And I said, now, look inside yourself. What about you? She says, I don't think I've ever been able to say I love you. But I realize now that I've been blaming her for my self-depreciation. And so people carry around this baggage, run the story, go to some therapist who puts a label on it, runs it and blames it and keeps you in therapy over God knows how long for something that's not even needing therapy half the time, just understanding. And it's the quality of your life basically quite the question. Just I asked her a new set of questions she never asked. And she was awakened to a hidden order in the chaos. The thing we think is traumatic isn't. We thought it was because we didn't ask the right questions to see all the factors that were involved. And I watch this all the time. 
a gentleman last year came to me and he said, I was told to talk to you because you can help me with my post-traumatic stress disorder. I said, okay, that's the label you got on it. Somebody's given you what, what's happened? Well, I'm a, a big company owner in Africa and I have a massive company and it's, I'm, I'm known, you know, I'm in the news. And I was driving down the highway in my, my nice car and four cars came and surrounded me and stopped right on the freeway. And they came out with machine guns, their heads covered with just eye openings and were surrounded in my car and banged the window out, grabbed the, the, the door opener because I locked it. And uh, they covered me, my head and pulled me out and stuck in the trunk. And there I was for five and a half hours smelling fumes of gas and, and in this darkness. And I was traumatized. Then I was taken to a, this kind of barn thing and held there and threatened and beaten until I paid millions of dollars to these people. And they threatened my family and were going to kill my family. And I said, okay, great. Let's go now to the exact moment at the moment they've come into the window and they've taken your ear with, let's go frame by frame by frame from everything there in any moment during this experience that you thought you were traumatized. And in that moment, your mind in a freeze response will dissociate and create an anti-memory, a vagal response, an anti-memory mechanism in order to survive it. Let's find out what it was and balance it out and watch the trauma go away. And so we went into that truck and that's when all of a sudden in the darkness, he saw a beautiful light and he was out running in a fresh aired field. The fumes turned it into a fresh aired field. The dark turned it into the summery uh, light, the constraint he was free, running and flying with birds and butterflies, which are symbols in his mind of freedom. He was feeling like he was never going to see his family again and they were going to get killed. He was there keeping an eye and protecting an out safe environment. His mind created an anti-memory to counterbalance the memory. And when I helped him realize that and get present with that, in the moment of perception, this is available. The mind will automatically bring it to the surface if you're really skilled at the asking the questions. He looked at that and we did that frame by frame by frame through this entire experience whenever he felt there was something that was threatening. In each case, we balanced out the equation. He goes, I don't feel traumatized. I said, no, you weren't. Your mind took care of it. Your mind is powerful. I said, now, what's the benefit of being going through that? He said, what do you mean benefit? How can there be benefits in that? I said, what was the benefit? I don't see benefits. I know that's why you've labeled it traumatic and that's why your therapist supported that. But what was the benefit and upside to it in that moment? Go back to that moment. And in the car, he said, all I want to do is see my kids. I, I had taken my kids for granted. I'd been focusing on business. My family was sort of in the way. We were headed for a divorce. My wife was trying to warn me, you don't see the kids, you don't even know the kids. And she was telling me, you don't come home, I'm not even married, it's not working for me. I was having hypertension. I was working incredible hours. I was forcing people to do things, pushing people uphill all day long. And in that moment, I got to love and appreciate my kids and my wife for the first time than I could remember. And when that, that realized, I realized that, that was more of a priority than even my business in that moment. I wasn't thinking about the business as much as I was thinking about them and how safe I wanted them to be. So I, one of the benefits is I got close. And the moment I 
paid the ransom and I was dropped off and I made my way home. I just held my family. He said, and that was one of the most magnificent moments in my life. I, could, I couldn't have gotten if I had not had that bed. So is that one of the benefits? I said, that sounds like one of the benefits. What's another benefit? He said, I lost a bunch of weight. My blood pressure came down. I've been overeating. And now I'm now now that I'm home, my wife is helping me drink juices and we're doing yoga classes and walking with the family out in the fields like I saw. I said, what else is another benefit? During the time I was away from the business for five and a half weeks, I had no choice but to let everybody else rise to the occasion and all the people that I've been trying to push uphill took command of the business. And they're now running the business and I'm home. And I said, what's another benefit? Then all of a sudden he goes, the month I was gone, the five weeks I was gone, the business made more money than the cost of the ransom. He says, I feel like I came out ahead. Right now I'm almost feeling grateful for these guys. These guys got me my family back, organized my business more effectively, helped me keep myself from dying from heart attack. Everything that was deep inside intuitively wanting to be solved was solved, but I was too proud and cocky to see it. And I needed a tragedy to humble me back into where I could see the truth. And right now I'm grateful. And I'd like to almost thank this individual, this, this group of people, because I'm now where I wanted to be without even realizing it. He wasn't traumatized when he was done. He was thankful. Thankfulness is seeing mindfully. Trauma is only seeing half of what's there. That is such a powerful story. And the, the story before about your other student who went through what she did with her family and the sense of abandonment. It's amazing how you've been able to transform those feelings and what they perceived as trauma into thankfulness and seeing it in a mindful way. It's, it's so touching, both the stories. And you know what? It's a shame that we have to go through in our lives things which shake us up. It's a shame that we have to get to the point where life throws something at you. I was on a pedestal and I suddenly thought, I thought my life was amazing, actually. I, I, I really did. I was living my life thinking I was so wonderful. I put myself on a pedestal and I had no way of safely getting off. And so, boom, life hit me with an illness. And... I'd never had anything in health hit me. It was only 27, 28. And I, I just didn't see it. I was like, I thought I was healthy. I thought I could eat what I want. I was a dancer, gymnast growing up. Like, how has this happened to me? And all of a sudden it hit me pain to say, honey, you're going in the wrong direction and you need to U-turn. And I had to, I had to U-turn so fast, but even through the illness when I was going through it and I was bedbound for some of it because I couldn't, it was so heavy for me and autoimmune disorder. And when I was going through it, I didn't realize, I still didn't realize, why me, why me, why me, why is this happening to me? I thought I was a good person. Well, no, actually you're not. You need to look at your life and what you're doing and how you're not living a life of purpose and how you're not living a life to impact other people, how you're living a life just for you. And I had to ask myself a series of questions. Yeah, I mean, that's all you can do when you can't do anything else, when you can't go outside in your normal way. You just turn inward. And I was 
forced to turn inward. But when I did, I found the answers. I found the answers to, I wanted to go back to me. No, I did not need to go back to me. I wanted to go back to help. No, I needed to shatter my ego, the glass on my ego. I needed to shatter it through what I was going through. Was It was shattering it before my very eyes and it needed to shatter so that I could rebirth Natasha. So I could rebirth who I was born to be, not who society and his story told me I was born to be. I needed to evolve and become somebody new and I wouldn't be who I am today if I hadn't have gone through that for sure. There is no way I would have looked into the metaphysical and the way I have into neuroscience and the way I have into everything I've studied and continued to study and teach. I wouldn't be who I am today because that was just one of many things I went through and I do say thank you to it. I'm like, I know why I went through it and I have changed how I look at health now. Health is now my number one value, my number one priority. Health comes first, family, career, and then the rest of everything for me, you know. So I really prioritize how I wake up, what I do in my day. Because there, if you don't have your health, you have nothing. If you don't have your, I call it full sparkle, you have nothing. When I lost my sparkle, I, I'd lost me. I have to be at full sparkle so I'm able to empower other people. Our physiological symptoms, our psychological intuitive feedback, our sociological feedback, our business feedback, feedback from around the world is constantly trying to get us authentic. That's all that's ever happening. You know, I had a, a gentleman attend my Breakthrough Experience program, which is one of my signature programs, and he was a toughie. And we asked everybody to think of who they admire most and who they despise most, and then they were going to work in owning all that, clearing that, and um, leveling the playing field. And he picked his father his father, he resented deeply. I mean, very deeply. His mother died when he was four. His father was a bit of an aggressor, and the mother was a bit of a disempowered kind of woman, depending on him, got treated a bit aggressively. So when he was four years old, before he turned five, his father, when the mother died, the father said, you're now responsible for cooking, shopping, cleaning, all the stuff that mom did, you're responsible for. That's your job. And if you don't do it, you're in trouble. And if he didn't do something exactly as the father wanted, the father would hit him with a baseball bat. And so the only place he could hide from his father was underneath a bunk bed, a real tall, heavy bunk bed. He'd hide under there. It was really only a kid get under there. An adult couldn't get under there. So he'd hide under there and surround himself with pillows, and he could only get pushed by a bat, but nothing could hurt him back there. Now, what's interesting is the lady next door saw what was going down, and she used to come over there to help him clean and help him cook and never let the father know because he was at work. And she was the one that was kind of overprotecting him and keeping him safe and doing what he can to balance it out. So the lady next door was kind of like the counterbalance to the aggressive father. A balance of, of opposites is what nature always provides. But he didn't see that. He just saw this aggressive father. He resented that and expected the other. So in the process, in the, in the breakthrough experience, I asked him to go to the moment when he resented his father the most, and in that moment, what were the benefits? 
It said there was no benefits. How could there be? And he wanted to run his story. And no matter what I did, he didn't want to see his benefits. And finally, I intuitively, he was just stubborn. He wasn't going to go there because he's been running his whole life from four to then running this story. You know, he's 40-something now. So I asked him, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm the chief animator for Disney. And I went, I know it. Now I got it. I said, so you're the one that creates all the fantasy movies for the young kids? He said, yeah. I said, I got a question. What was the toughest age with your father? He said, between four and about 11. I said, is that the age group that you put all your Disney movie fantasies for? And he goes, yes. Did you ever thank your father for the... Because when you were under the bed, you were dissociating and creating fantasy movies about a life and you could see them so vividly, you could you could put them into the, into animation. He said, I never saw that. I said, did you thank your father or give him a percentage of what you've earned? He said, I never saw it. And he started bawling. And he literally fell down on the floor to his knees and just curled up in a fetal position and bawled for about 15, 20 minutes. And he never saw. He went into the position that he was hiding under the bed. And he never saw the gift that nature was providing that no one could have probably given him if it hadn't have been for that background. And so when he all of a sudden he just felt love for his father and I pulled somebody out of the room to play a surrogate role of his father, he didn't say anything. He just wouldn't put his arms around his father and they cried. And the guy that he picked had been distant from his son. One of those perfect synchronicities and the man said to the, to the son what exactly what the boy wanted to hear. And the boy said to the father what he wanted to hear. And it was one of those things that no one had a dry eye in the room. It's one of those magnificent synchronicities that are available to people who ask wise questions to unfold the hidden order and the apparent chaos that they're running in their minds. So all of a sudden, he wasn't resentful to his dad. He was grateful. But he never saw that in 30-something years. And it takes those events to give us sometimes the more proud, the more cocky, the more invincible, the more exaggerated we puff ourselves up, the harder the tragedy has to be in order to do it. See, people think that comedy, comedy lifts up people who are down and shamed. Tragedy takes people down who are cocky and proud. And they both, pride and shame, are brought together by, guess what? Tragedy and comedy. And that's why we're led to certain TV shows and movies sometimes unconsciously to try to wake us up, but we still ignore it. What a story. The way that things happen in our lives and we block them out. I blocked out so many things as well. There's so many traumas I've been through as such, which aren't traumas anymore, which I've come to peace with. But I like your method. I think today I'm going to go and spend some time myself and go and dive into some of the scenes I've been through in my movie and reflect on them and look at the opposites and recreate it. I love your method. This is so moving. I've learned so much myself. I always do. You are one of the greatest teachers on planet Earth. I truly mean it, John. You really are a spectacular being. I'm so grateful to have heard these stories today and I know you've touched the lives of many people. And we hope someone listening 
has found peace and is going to go and dive into their own journey today and like me go and find out how to really thank that scenario you went through in your life and come to peace with it so you can be thankful and live a loving and happy harmonious life and once you're there forgiveness doesn't exist as dr john so beautifully said and you'll find out more from john i'm sure and i'm gonna put your tags below and is there any particular program or anything that somebody might like to dive into you could tell us about that they can learn more from you from on my website there's a complimentary private value determination process to help them find out what's intrinsically meaningful to them, their purpose. And that's 30 minutes of their time to just go through. It's private. You can store it on there and you can compare it and look at it again, make sure you're honest with yourself. So I would encourage people to do that because I've received thousands of thank yous from people doing it. It's a lot of insight to gain. And I know I, 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 I'm blessed to do seminars and webinars and podcasts daily. But the one that is most meaningful to me is the breakthrough experience. That's where I get to share the method. That's where I get to share about values. That's where I get to actually help people break through the stuff that they're maybe misinterpreting about reality in their life. And so that, that program is, it's, I've done it 1,166 times. <laughs> I do it a lot. I love that program. Wow. Well, there we go. That's the place to go. That's definitely the program. The links are below, so you'll be able to dive in. John, thank you so much for coming today. I've had a wonderful time as ever. I'm sure we'll do another annual catch-up in a year as the podcast ever grows. And thank you for, for being here with us in your wonderful travels. Thank you. And thank you for the lovely questions and for your essence. So I look forward to it, and thank you for the, having the time and helping me fulfill my mission of helping other people through the people you're now helping me reach. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for listening, everyone. If you've enjoyed today's show as much as we have, we've sure enjoyed being here, and I'm sure your ears are just glistening bright right now. You're ready and you're enjoying. Please do share this with someone you think could really do with it. I always say when you share, you receive. Actually, in life, we always think what we receive is the greatness, not what we give is the greatest gift. So when you're listening to this today, think of somebody you want to share it with. And we always enjoy it when you come back again every Thursday for our next guest. We have someone really exciting on next week as well. So I look forward to catching up with you, John, again soon. Thank you for an amazing episode. With love always, I'm your host, Natasha Graziano. This is the Law of Attractions and Grits, and we'll see you again soon. Add. Add.